Welcome to Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, welcome back to the show, Profane Faith. We appreciate you listening. Thank you for downloading or streaming or whatever you're doing to listen to this thank you so much i appreciate it we appreciate it here white hot podcasts and uh so thank you we appreciate it um you know today uh before we even get into the episode i thought i thought this was fitting um so i'm on my way out the door and i'm scrambling as i usually am trying to get out the door uh to find some paperwork we're um here in illinois our property taxes are just crazy they're insane they're insane like the property tax assessor just literally drives by and says mm, this house is maybe at a hundred thousand dollars or this house is maybe at four hundred thousand dollars they never do a real assessment so our taxes are insane now if any of you know anything about chicago and just some of the you know the fact that we have two governors that are in federal prison i mean yeah those things are true so when it comes to property taxes, uh, even our realtor said, you know, you got to go and protest it every daggone year. So just imagine that every year I'm, I'm in the tax assessor's county office. Anyways, I'm in there, I'm getting my stuff and I'm rush, trying to rush out the door because my appointment's at 11, it's 1046 and I'm trying to get out there and I hear a knock on the door and I'm thinking it's a, an Amazon thing coming. I was like, well, let me go at least say hi to the Amazon person and, you know, say what's up. It was not. As soon as I opened the door, I saw a brother man in a suit. I already knew what time it is. Y'all know what time it is, right? Oh, yeah. JW.org. Now, here's the thing. I am not trying to down any particular religion or denomination. I'm really not. But here's the thing, yo. You come to my house <laughs> and it's interesting. So, so the guy, you know, we get into a conversation again, I'm not trying to put anybody down, but I, I think this is important because I would imagine if you're listening to this podcast and it, at this point in the podcast, you, you, you're probably a little bit more on the progressive side of things. Okay. You know, you know, I'm not a conservative, you know, I'm not theologically conservative. Um, I come from that background. I come from that environment, but that is not who I am now. And so this guy hands me this thing, right? Um, this little track, you know, he brother, man, you know, and I'm just like, all right, look, I ain't going to lie. I mean, he was a black man dressed up. So I was like, all right, let me listen to this brother. But I got to go, man. And I didn't want to be rude. Like I genuinely had to go. Like I wasn't trying to be, you know, I wasn't like my, my elevator speech. Like when the J dubs, you know, come to the, come to the door. Um, I, I was, I was literally, I had to go. <laughs> So he asked me this track, you know, he's telling me about, you know, this and that. I, I already knew, I was like, okay, he's either going to be JW, he's Zionist, um, or something else, some other thing, you know, that's going on over there. <laughs> um, and anyways, he was just, he had me this track. So the track says, will suffering ever end? Would you say yes, no, maybe? And I'm literally, I mean, I'm holding it right here in front of you. It's what the Bible says. And it, ha and it actually has, you know, in the, in the front page, it has, not on the front page of the track. Of course, they have a white woman, of course. But when you open it up, you have a black man you know, looking at, you know, the Bible, reading the Bible. You know, I'm just like, oh, okay. You know, got a little contextual stuff going on here. They know their demographic. They know the houses. You know, my our blog is predominantly African-American. 
And, you know, what can it mean for you? Now, this is on the heels. You know, I know podcasts are dated, but, you know, at the time of me recording this, um, this is on the heels of the whole uh, hurricane that hit Houston. Um, and he's talking about that and about how things are just upheaval. And, then, you know, he points to a scripture in the Bible, you know, kind of proof texted it. But nonetheless, he points to a scripture in the Bible where he says, man, you know, there's going to be some crazy things happening in the end of the world. And what does the Bible really say about that? So I'm trying to hear him out. At the same time, I'm watching my clock. I'm watching my watch. And I'm like, brother, I got to go. And so anyways, he's, you know, he's over there saying, doing his thing. So I was just like, hey, man, you know, thank you very much. Again, I'm not trying to be rude. Usually I am. I'll shut him off in a minute or I'll be like, you know, come on, dude. Like, really, you we're going to have a conversation about theology. Like, I got a couple of advanced degrees in that. But anyways, I don't try to be that arrogant. But, you know, saying sometimes I'm just like, dude, come on come on plus my sign i have a door a uh, sign on the door that says you know do not we don't we don't want to solicitors in fact the whole place where i live uh, the whole village where where we live you know they have you know with no solicitors so i'm like you, you didn't you didn't you didn't see the sign all right at any rate so he goes on and tries to say well you know uh would it be okay if i come back and i was like all right brother let me just stop you right there i was like look we got a good church um, we attended. It's good. You know, we going on. He's like, oh, OK, OK. Um, but, you know, this is what it says in the Bible, you know, and I thought we were going to go there, but I appreciated he at least let it go. He was like, OK, all right. Well, take a look at that track. It's all in the Bible. <laughs> it's like, all right. It's all in the Bible. Right. Um, and I thought that's just interesting, you know, particularly with how we have really buttoned down what it means to witness and what it means to go out into the community. And there was a whole bunch of them. I was looking up and around and it was, it was a pack of African-Americans. It was like, okay, they ain't sending all the white folks to the black neighborhood, right? They sending the black folks to the black neighborhood, you know? So it's, and you know, and it worked. I, I didn't slam the door. <laughs> oh, I didn't just not even answer. Like there's been times when I go to the door, look, and then I just walk away. <laughs> Y'all think I'm joking too, man. I'm not. Um, Cause sometimes I'm just like, dude, I just don't have the time to get into it. And today was one of those days I genuinely didn't have time to get into it, but I opened it thinking it was the Amazon person. Uh, it wasn't. <laughs> and nonetheless, I got this track, but I thought it was just interesting because when we think about witnessing, we think about going out, we think about the great commission. What does that actually mean? What does that mean for you? And for those of you who are not Christian, what does your faith say then about spreading that word about your faith? Right. What does that say about going out there? And, and, because I'm thinking there's no relationship in this conversation right now. You are presenting to me information. You are giving to me a piece of paper that I'm not sure if this ever worked, but I'm sure I know there was a time, particularly between the 40s and in, in, in the mid 60s, where this type of stuff worked, where the written word is, you know, which, you know, which we could trace that all the way back to, um, you know, very Eurocentricness, you know, this worship of the word, the worship of the letter of the law. You know, we worship that. We we really put a lot into that, right? We want everything in writing. We want things that are perfect. I mean, even, you know, setting the website up, you need everything in writing, right? So I get that. But it's 2017. And not even 2017. I mean, again, I don't want to, you know, necessarily date this. I mean, if you're listening to this and it's like 2020 now and hopefully we have a new president. <laughs> um, what You know, what does that mean in the 21st century? And are you going to get to know me? Are you going to come back over? Or are you just looking to get another notch on your belt? I don't know. Those things stick out to me, right? Right. Uh, we're going to do a whole show on that. <laughs> we go. We we are like, what does that mean? So and, and I bring that up because my guest today is a real good friend of mine. I would say probably my best friend as it stands right now. And, you know, the second thing about this, this brother doesn't even live in the same daggone country 
that I live in. <laughs> I actually wish I could be where he was in Australia. This brother's in Australia, y'all. Brisbane, Australia. Joseph Boston uh, has been a friend of mine. Uh, we met, uh, oh man, back through, I think, Urban Youth Workers Institute. And uh, he was uh, a youth worker there. He's going to get into the story of his life and everything. And he and I just talk. Uh, it's just great to have another brother that gets it and it by me however you want to define it but he gets it and he is able to deal with high levels of just doubt and ambiguity and tension um but more importantly it's just great to have his friendship his connectiveness and to be able to talk we on my way out to my therapist on on tuesday nights you know it's like a 45 50 minute drive uh we talk on my way back from class on thursday nights uh we talk um and it's just nice because there's a major time difference right it's like my night is his mid-afternoon and my early morning is his late night so you know we got to work it out but you know that's what friends do right so i wanted to have this conversation because joseph his journey his journey of profane faith is really that of what I'm just kind of talking about, it's been disrupted. Um, and I thought that was very interesting, and I thought it was worthy of having a whole show just around that. So, again, sit back, relax, and check out this conversation with my good friend, Joseph Boston. All right, brother Joseph Boston, man. Thank you so much for uh, being on the show today, man. Thank you for having me. Man, it's good, man. So, for the, for the listeners, man, you know, people who are tuning in or whatever... Where are you at in the world, man? <laughs> Where are we talking from today? Right now, you're speaking to me in sunny Queensland, Australia. It's Sunday here, about 2.52 p.m. in the afternoon. So, I mean, I'm on the other side of the equator, the other side of the world here. <laughs> I heard that, man. <laughs> Just for context, it's 11.52 p.m. here on Saturday. And so that's just to give you guys a little context and stuff, man. Right. Um, so Joseph, you and I go back. I mean, when did we meet? We met at a urban youth workers Institute. I think you came yep. to a workshop I was doing. Yep. Yeah. I met that was back in, what was that like June or July of 2010? Because it was, I moved out here September of 2010. So I was already on my way out of the country, but I uh, came up there with some, some people I was doing some ministry work with and, uh, Matt, Matt, uh, Matt, he was uh, from Urban, I mean, uh, youth. what did he do? Urban Youth Workers? Um, no, what's that? What's another program um, that he was youth involved specialties? in? Young Life. Young Life. Oh, that's right. That's right. Were you Matt, with Young you Life? From, no, but I was I was, do, I was doing ministry with their church. They had like a little startup church in Phoenix there, and he was involved in Young Life. So when we went to Urban Youth Workers, he knew you from somewhere. I don't remember yeah. where he knew you from, Yeah, but he saw your saw your uh workshop and he he was like yo you should take this workshop i think you and him <laughs> and i was kind of like yeah i don't know i mean yeah i went and the rest is history like then we met from there and we uh, yeah since. well i just I, well i remember what struck out to me man was just your comments and uh your insight um and because you know you do those workshops and you know you just you never know and i remember it was like an extended one because i had been asking urban youth workers for years to hey man give me more than 45 minutes give me more than four so they gave me like you know that was like the like half the day and stuff man and so and i remember your your insight on stuff man and i was just like man this brother got something going on and stuff man so <laughs> um we'll share just a little bit and then i want to get into this thing with trump and evangelicals and the satan church and all that sure. stuff brother because i think what folks don't know i've been reading your stuff for a long time man and like you know with you writing and which and you and i you know we're doing we have a chapter together uh what's it uh what's it called the racism awakens 
racism awakens in the in the critical reader we have of uh star wars coming out at the end yeah of the year, that's right that's right we'll uh we'll have to do another show and just promote that and talk about that chapter show. Yeah, so for those of you uh listening you know stay stay tuned for that one that one you make sure you subscribe um but uh yeah i mean your your insight has always always gotten me man and i just i love it i mean you're a brilliant brother so share a little bit of some of your brilliance what uh how have you gotten to the point here i'm not necessarily asking for like a full testimony but what what has brought you to where you're at now i guess the, the bigger question to that is like how have you been theologically informed well i think first and foremost man i would have to say that you know you our relationship and our friendship has really played a huge part in that hmm. um you know as much as you know your brilliance your your intellect um the, the things that you've written i mean i think that's why we get along so well I mean, as much as you've been a, a friend and a brother to me, you know, I also feel like you've also been a mentor and teacher to me just in terms of, oh, man. you know, increase, increasing my my theological window and perspective, mm. which I feel like, you know, going in, when you're when you're when you're when you're steeped in the church. And that's not saying it's actually a negative thing, but um, my my opinion here is that whether it's the black church or the white church, what we're really getting in a variety of different ways is it's kind of like this really compartmentalized white, white theology. Yeah. Yeah. That, that to be honest, but I think between our relationship and me actually moving from the States to Australia in September of 2010 and being removed from that context of not really having a church home and then coming here and trying to find one and some of the experience that I had um, and being able to take a step away outside of that bubble and really look at things from kind of like, I guess, an abstract perspective, mm-hmm. really in, in conjunction with my own personal journey and awakening really made me begin to question a lot of things hmm. that uh, I've been experienced with my time in the church as like a, a youth leader and um, things like that. So Yeah. Can you share a little bit about that? Cause yeah, exactly. I mean, cause you, I just where you're at now, I just, I kind of forget you were like a youth pastor, youth leader and stuff, man. Like what, sure. what if you could, what wouldn't mind. Sure. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, like ultimately before I moved out here from the States, I was very active in, um, a small start startup church uh, in in Arizona. Um, I was leading a youth discipleship uh, Bible study group every week on a Wednesday night with that with with that group. Um, you know, I had done some work with a pretty big church in, in Phoenix. Um, um, and specifically with a pastor named Pastor Chad. I'd done some things with his with his youth camp. It's called Camp Elevate. So I guess mm. it's gotten pretty big. Shout out to Pastor Chad. I think he's the, the pastor for the Pittsburgh Steelers. I haven't talked to him in a while, but. Uh, um, so I was doing work with him there and then obviously kind of just lost that community when I came out here and moved to, to Australia and I tried to go to church out here. I went to Hillsong actually, hmm. <laughs> the infamous, famous <laughs> Hillsong. Yes. Just uh, down the road. There's a, there's a, there's a Brisbane branch literally five minutes down the road from my house hmm. so that I had started, started attending there. And I think for me, ultimately, I guess I think probably that was a really pivotal moment for me and my experience in terms of. Uh, being a black man, being here in Australia, trying to find a home church in Australia, which is you know overwhelmingly white majority, hmm. um, trying to get into Hillsong, where even more so, what, what I really was trying to get into, as I look back in the past, I was trying to ingratiate myself into this white middle to upper class culture, yeah. which my, that's my perspective I have today as a black person in order to, especially when you're going into a multicultural or, you know, a quote unquote white dominated church, mm-hmm. um, you have to basically conform yourself, not to 
basically Christian teachings, but more so to the mores and norms of like white, the white Christian upper to middle class. That's how I feel. Wow. And so, and so being inside of that environment um, really began to have me, I guess, it, I guess it exemplified my blackness even more so my blackness in terms of the experiences that I have that come with me being a black man in a racialized world. Yeah. And how, those things uh, cause those things to be more prominent in my mind and realizing and seeing in those spaces that the questions that were being raised by me or come or whether those were verbal or in my own head, they couldn't be answered in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hmm. man, that's deep. Man. Well, so was well, here. So one of the first things that comes to my mind then is I know after after the November election, I think for at least for me, I mean, and we've talked about this um, Brandy, well, Brandy Miller, she's another uh, uh, person I've had on uh, on 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 the show as well. Um, she's brilliant, and um, I'm just like, man, that is like she's she's like this woman's got like three or four different PhDs in just language and theology and and politics. But she, I remember she posted uh, on 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 Twitter, and she was like, you know, once once the election happened, you know, in November here uh, last year, um, it was like. She, I remember she tweeted out, I have, I have officially filed my divorce papers with evangelicalism. Um, mm-hmm. And that struck me. That has struck me. That has um, resonated. It's like a bell that continues to ring. Um, mm. and, and so much so because I know I was raised and deeped and steeped in, in, in um, uh, evangelical, the evangelical world. Um, but I think I've been separated from the evangelical world and because that for me that statement was like that's it i'm done that's it Uh, i'm done i'm not i'm not going down that route anymore man i don't know i i think i know you well enough to know you kind of in that camp as well i don't at least i don't think you identify as evangelical anymore (laughs) no i'm at a point now where i don't even know what i I don't necessarily have a a stamp to put on it to be honest with you Mm -hmm. yeah I have my, I mean, I have these uh, significant things happen in my life on my journey of faith. These, um, what I would term supernatural experiences Mm -hmm. that validate to me um, the presence of, of something that we could, I guess, for lack of a better word, we could call God. Okay. Yeah. But uh, that's, that's the only thing that keeps me clinging on to any type of faith. Uh, And certainly the, uh, my experiences within the church, uh, no less my experiences with it, with the white church wouldn't lead me to call myself an evangelical. Yeah. <laughs> Real quick, I was surprised, what was really surprising to me um, post this election yeah. is really the degree to which many black Christians were are surprised yeah. about the behavior. Of yeah. The That's what's surprising to me. Right. Right. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, talk a little bit about that, man. What, uh, Talk a little bit about it because I know that. Well, yeah, sure. go ahead. I mean, I think I'm not even going to talk. I'm not even necessarily talking from a from a uh, from a personal perspective here, but just even just looking at things, this thing from a linear type of historical perspective, right? Right. Um, we yeah. can go back. To, go back. We don't have to go back that far. We can go back 50 years, back to the 60s, <laughs> when Dr. King was talking. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When Dr. Martin Luther King was talking about. You know, white Christians. I'm not just going to even compartmentalize it and say evangelicals, white Christians across the board. He was talking about you know the the tepidness and effect, the fecklessness of their faith, right? Yeah. That he found that their silence. I think I read a quote just recently. He said his their silence 
in light of the injustice that black people, black Christians were experiencing, um, he said it caused his heart. He's, he said he's cried tears of sorrow. Mm-hmm. And it's funny for me, I don't know if this speaks to where I'm at personally <laughs> or my faith development growth or both. I don't know, but I, I read that. And sometimes I see that I'm like, dang, Dr. King had more of, um, Dr. King had more of an affinity or a heart than I have at this point. I'm not wasting any tears yeah. for these people. Yeah. Certainly not wasting tears for us. <laughs> yeah. I don't well, have the time or energy for that. Well, I mean, I think that's interesting because I mean, okay. So one of the things that, uh, so I actually had a really good conversation with brother Broderick Greer. I don't know if you, you're familiar with him on, on Twitter. Yeah, man. And so he was, we were talking about just what does a theology of violence look like? What does God within that mean? Cause I mean, if you think about it, let's, let me, let's boil it down. I mean, loving people and loving, like love did not conquer the Nazis in world war two. Right. Right. <laughs> love love right. did not win over the South that they were going to just be like, oh, I, yeah, the North loves us. So, yes, let's just give up our slave holdings. Right. So I'm curious. This is and this is something that's been just going back and forth in my head of what. Of what, you know, what, what does this look like? So I, share a little bit about it, because I know we've talked a lot about this just on phone calls. And, you know, when I'm driving to my therapist or whatever, man, I get a chance to talk with you, man. We've talked a little bit about it. I mean, what does that, what does it look like? Does, you know, do black folks need to take up arms? Should we be registered gun owners? I mean, how does, how does, how does that play out? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, uh, I would like to take a cue from Brother Malcolm, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're right, you know? right, right. I think there's a great quote he has there, and I'm just going to paraphrase it because I don't want to misquote him, but I think he said once in, amongst the plethora of brilliant things he had to say, he said something along the lines that, you know, once somebody steps on your foot, nobody else has the right to tell me how to get them off it. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, so I, so I feel like, yeah, I'm, you know, I went from being, a, I was in the Army five years. Um, I know I'm very well versed in how to use all different forms of weapons. I, even up to the time when I got out of the army in 2000, I definitely would say, you know, I've had hmm. an evolution of thought hmm. in terms of when I got in 2000, I would definitely be a person who said he was anti-gun. Even though I knew how to use weapons. Yeah. Certainly didn't have any desire to be a private gun owner. Okay. But I would say 2017, based on what I've learned individually, what I've witnessed, through, you know, the things that are going on in our world today. Right. Yeah. I'm pro-gun for black people. And like, <laughs> If I was in the States today, you best believe I would be exercising my Second Amendment rights <laughs> to go get a pit to protect myself. And let, let, let's keep it clear, too, that Dr. King himself, you know, the very venerated, yeah. Yeah. Um, nonviolent, uh, uh, passive, diso, uh, nonviolent passive disobedience, or however you want to frame it there. Hmm. Dr. King himself attempted to get a gun, being a man of the South. Yeah. He went to go register for it, was denied. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that right. Despite right, the plethora of threats he had received, his homes being his home and his family being threatened, his home being bombed, he was denied. So let's put that out there: the king himself. And there I think this go. was probably before to the, adopt what Gandhi's perspective on nonviolence. Right. Um, he himself went to go get a gun and was denied. Well, and his bodyguards so, were well or were known for having for having guns as well too, and being armed. Right, and I wasn't right, and I wasn't aware of that. But I think what really shaped my perspective and helped me come around the circle, uh, come full circle in that regard more was Robert Williams book, uh, Negroes with guns. 
mm. which gave me a, a different a different context about this and a different perspective about the civil rights movement yeah. that went outside of the accepted narrative. Okay. I feel there's a, there's a romanticization yeah. about the nonviolence of the civil rights movement mm-hmm. um, that, that that on the borders of that narrative is where we see from people like Robert Williams that guns were also very necessary yeah. to protect those protests, protect themselves from white mob violence. Right. So I think that was that was really a big fundamental um, difference in me. Uh, again, internally um, having these thoughts and then seeing things and then obviously reading different pieces of literature really brought me full circle. That yeah, I believe that just uh, Christians or non-Christians, black people have every right to be able to defend themselves against uh, the threat of violence, whether that be white violence, white mob violence, whether you're a Christian or not. I think that would be foolish to allow somebody to, to take your life because what you feel like you're going to get a an eternal seat in heaven. <laughs> I oh, mean, thank you. yeah. Well, I mean, I think part of it too, man, is I think this, let's see, how do I want to put it? Cause there's so many layers to this. I think there's a social construct mm-hmm. around, you know, this, this notion of how particularly black people should forgive. And this notion oh, of, of, of right. You know what I'm saying? I mean, so there's this also this notion that black people should should just, uh, you know, turn the other cheek. Um, totally. You know, and that we should just somehow just be passive about this. Um, and meanwhile, the state, which is white run, right. uh, will attack Al Qaeda. They'll attack Muslim. They'll attack anybody they've they've deemed as violent and, and use lethal force and then theologize behind it. I mean, so. I guess I would love mm. to hear your thoughts on that and just how you've arrived. You talked about some of the some of the stuff you've read. I mean, just talk a little bit about that, how that's informed you and where you're at right now. Yeah, I mean, essentially, so when we talk about, you know, we have this discussion on theology, I feel oftentimes when we do have this, when, when we or when I see, we, and I say we, I mean as a community, so whether that's us sure. directly or what I see, social media and things like Twitter, when we're having these discussions, I still feel like, much of our discourse is still dictated from a white centric theological perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, right. That, yeah. you know, like you said, turn the other cheek. Um, you know, we don't, we don't perpetrate violence against people who perpetrate violence against us. Those things are very, I feel like they are very white centric, uh, theological principles that go back even the, the work, sorry, the work to the work to pacify us to our own oppression. Yeah. You know, when I, yeah. when I can text, so when I contextualize that and I think about that message being given to our, our forebears, our ancestors, while they are enslaved, while their language has been taken to them, while our ancestors' religion has been taken to them, we have to then begin to, um, so we're looking for here, we have to begin to engage Christianity, not just as this, this a faith that paradoxically has also sustained black people yeah. through tremendous yeah. amount of pressure. We also have to begin to look at it and look at the history of it also as being what I would say is a colonizing effect on black people yeah. in that it, it has pacified us yeah. to, 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 our, to our oppressor and, 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 and has led us to believe that there is a virtue in not being nonviolent in the face of violence, that there's a virtue in us um, giving our forgiveness uh, uh, to, 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 to white people, for example, when they murder us, right? I right. think that, you know, Farrakhan, 
Farrakhan, I'm pulling right. Farrakhan said it himself. He's like, the only thing the white people want to know when they murder us is, is are we going to forgive them? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So they can go out and Man. So I think that that's a, <laughs> right. So I think that's a really, that's something that we don't, I don't see these conversations having within the theological circle, within the church circle, which is another reason why I don't participate in church because I'm not really interested or a church in the traditional sense, right? Obviously, we yeah. can say that when one or two come together on the same thing, we're the presence of the Lord. We're having church right now, but church in terms of, uh, is, it, is, 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 it, is it socially constructed? Right. I don't, feel, I don't feel there's anything there for me because we're not even having the type of conversations I feel that we should be having in terms of our faith inside those spaces. Yeah. We're not talking, you know, more about, we know more about, um, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John then we know about our ancestors. Yeah. Yeah. We know we know more about the history of Jewish oppression as it's written in the in the in the Bible than we know what we know about what happened to us before slavery and after slavery and in between the middle passage. We don't even know much about that. So why is it that we spend so much time focused on these 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 issues when we don't at least even contextualize what we read in scripture with what's happening in our in our life, in our experience, I think there's something completely backwards when black people can speak more to the experience of the, Jew- the, the Jewish narrative, whether they were conquered by the Babylonians, whether they were conquered by the Assyrians, so on and so forth, mm-hmm. when we barely even know what happened to us. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's the truth. No, that's the truth. I mean, I think, I think a lot of it, too, is what is the starting point of theological inquiry? I think, you know, if we start with a colonization and a Eurocentric mind, that's what we're going to get. I mean, it's like rooting out cancer. I mean, you can't just go and be like, all right, well, here's a couple of pills and it'll clear up. So for me, I know for my own theological journey, I mean, I know for me, I had, once I started reading back in seventh and sixth century Africa, you know, mm. Ghana and Sierra Leone and Kenyan and Nigeria mm. and the Zulu nation. That mm. for me was when I began to see, really began to see that this, you know, what I've been told, a lot of what I've been told is not, <laughs> is not accurate. It is, um, it is a false narrative. Um, totally. It, it, it's like real quick. I yeah, go it's ahead. It's like my whole life. It's only been like since the last, even I say the last five years, and this is just from different things I've seen on social media. To be honest, different articles that have been produced. But um, you know, I thought voodoo was a bad thing. Hmm. <laughs> you talk to me because about the, the yeah. That, break that down. The way, the way that it's been fed to us through through a variety of media, whether it's in the church itself, whether it's through film, that we see voodoo as like being like this demonic kind of like faith that was you that people used to you know voodoo dolls and to put hexes on people and yeah that's what i that's what i was taught about it that was yeah. the, that was mine yeah and then to find out like no nah, this is an ancient tradition that black people the black people enslaved black people have brought along with them from from the motherland from africa yeah um that we don't know anything about we've been taught our whole time <laughs> as, 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 in the diaspora this people. right right Oh man! Well, I mean, yeah, that's a whole, yeah, that's a whole, oh, yeah, right. Yeah. I'm just an example, right? That's just one small piece, like in terms of what we've been lied to about. Yeah. 
Well, I know Miguel de la Torre. I don't know if you follow him or just have read any of his material. He's, you know, Latinx scholar and um, he talks a lot about just Santeria and just how, you know, what what are the theological connections within that? What How do those cross over back into Christianity, particularly for Latinx peoples, right? I mean, because you're right. I mean, so much of this has been demonized. And I know, because here's the thing, I'm sure at this point, <laughs> and whoever's listening to this is kind of like, well, man, I don't know. This is C, that's, I don't know. I mean, here's the yep. thing. I always tell folks, like, look, because this is what I had to apply to myself. Don't confuse, like, the Holy Spirit's voice for culture shock. I think anytime we engage in something new, especially theological, right, because there's so much about that's involved with theology. And correct me if I'm wrong, man, but, you know, about eternity. Like, where is your soul going to live? And where are we? what are we going to do when we die? Right. That people don't necessarily want to, you know, it's like you almost want to get up. You want a perfectionist theology. I want to be able to fit in and I want to be able to do it. And I want to be able to have this outcome on the other end, man. Right. Right. And I think for me, um, and I could be, I mean, people may disagree with me. I'm, that's that's the, we're asking the wrong question because when we're dead, it's too late. <laughs> the question <laughs> is, what is, our, what is, what are we going to do when we, when we're alive and, and what does our faith mean to us? in our life right in light of all of whether it's whether it's our relationships in terms of our intimate community yeah whether it's our place in the world we see these larger issues about social injustice whether those things are you know gender oppression whether they're whether they're the racial oppression what what context and what way does my faith guide and inform me in light of those things and the only worthiness that is that is applicable here is what I do with it in my life. Like my grandma, my, my grandmother who passed away three years ago, you know, I think she's uh, applicable here when she says, you know, I don't want my flower. I don't want people to give me flowers when I'm dead. I want my flowers now. I want them when I'm alive. <laughs> right. When, 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 right. And her, you know, when we're when, when we, when we gone, we're dead. We can't appreciate them. She would say in her Jamaican accent. <laughs> she wants those flowers. So I think there's a, I think there's something informative there about our faith. Like what is our faith? If it's just about getting to the other side, let me. I'm less, I'm less interested in that. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm less interested in that. I'm more interested about what in ways does our faith yeah. inform the yeah. things I've spoken about. What ways does force? What way can my faith cause me to have better relationships? Because we all want those things, better relationships with our community. Those are the things that we should be looking at, not when we're getting to heaven to live for eternity. To be honest, that don't even interest me. <laughs> talk to me well oh no break that down man break that because i know so many people who live for that i mean i remember i did uh i started a research project i need to circle back and return and, and finish it up but looking at apocalyptic themes and just how people interpreted you know the end of the world and so i wanted to talk to a whole bunch of people i want to talk to secularists i wanted to talk to uh, uh um people who who looked at many different guys and you know, obviously i came around to christians and stuff and so i found interesting the christian folks so many of them, particularly fundamentalist people who were considered themselves conservative, they were actually just it was like they were just sick of living now and would just look. So, they put so much investment into heaven, like this heaven, this place that's out there. What? So. So. Yeah. So. So what is what is what? Is, yeah. What, what do you mean by that, man? Break the break that down a little bit when you when you're talking about, you know, heaven, like you, 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 you don't even know if you want it. What, what, what do you mean by that? That's I guess the, the larger question for me is not so much that I even want it. Like it's this, it's just this idea for me of trying to wrap my mind around something that is, you know, trying to wrap my finite mind around something that is infinite, right? This idea of heaven. It's for me, it's in the same token as if, um, 
I'm having a conversation with you and I'm talking about forever. I can't even, because we can't, because we're finite beings, we can't even conceptualize this notion of forever. We can't even conceptualize this notion of a, for eternity. And so for me, I'm, I'm not, I'm not caught up in those things. That's not, when I think about the top of my priorities, the top list yeah. of me, whether it's to do with, with my, with my children and my family, um, whether it's to do with the things that are larger in the world, those things take so much more greater precedence, precedence for me than this notion of like having some type of eternal life in heaven, um, which I just can't even begin to conceptualize that. And certainly, you know, even when we look at, and even when we look at the, the picture of heaven that's being offered up to us, even if we just go by um, what people have interpreted from the book of Revelations, you know, the, the, the roads are painted with gold and the, the gates, the gates of heaven being adorned with all of these fine gems and ornaments. I'm like, man, none of that, none of that, it sounds a lot like here. <laughs> yeah. And none of that, none of that really sounds fulfilling to me. Like, I yeah. just, I'm not working for that. Like, my, my existence in my life and my purpose of my life isn't about getting to that. It's about my legacy in terms of what I leave behind. That's what's more important to me. Hmm. Like, how, how are people going to think about me when I'm no longer here? What's my son going to think of me? You know, what's my, if my mother was here and I, and I passed, what is she going to have to say about me? You know, what would you have to say about me? I think those things are more important. And I think, you know, when, I guess maybe, I guess the interesting here is like, you know, when we talk about when the scriptures faith without works is dead, um, how is it then that we're so caught up in like what happens in the afterlife rather than doing the works here? Yeah. In the now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that's a, you know, that's a big argument, you know, against, uh, you know, climate change. It's like, oh, well, you know, God's going to give us a new earth anyway. So what, right. you know, what are we, what, why, why are we even, you know, thinking about that? Why are we even, why are we even, you know, considering, you know, doing something like that if the science is even real, right? <laughs> Right, which is which is again that's that within itself is a lazy form of faith within itself, right? Because we're also called to be good stewards of what we have been given, whether that's our children or whether that's the planet that we all exist on and have to coexist on. That you know, and I think there we have, and then I think there too, Dan, we can branch into when we talk about faith, whether we're talking about Christian or other faith groups. I think you know that's where first uh, first nation sovereign people are really really important in that discussion. We're talking about climate change and the fact that when you look at the history of first nation sovereign people, while not being Christians, always having an intrinsic belief that there was a connection between earth and the Supreme or the eternal. Yeah. And they were informed yeah. by the earth. And I think, you know, even Paul says that, right? Like Paul even makes allusions to that in the book of Romans in the very beginning when he says, Hey, if you want justifications and evidence of there being a God, well, first thing we just look to nature. Yeah. We, that God has created. And I say that uh, First Sovereign Nation people, um, they they knew that before this quote-unquote book, the Bible, was even created. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. That, that, that the notion of an eternal being, that a creator and a God was made manifest in nature and the way that the earth provided for them until the right. white man came along with the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean... You believe is all wrong. You have to read Romans 1. <laughs> No, to say that again, what was that? Uh, until until the colonizers came along, until Europeans, the white man came along and said, you know, everything that you believe in is wrong. You need to read Romans one. I'm being facetious here, but you know what I mean. No, I know what you mean, right? No, I mean, I mean, and I think, I mean, right? I think about what was what was given to us. I mean, I think about just even Native American, a lot of Native Americans who you know look at the land and look at 
you know, the 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 whole environment, take what it is you need, not everything that you just want. I mean, and I think, oh, man, I. <laughs> When I think about the just the, the sheer consumption just out of the United States and just the amount that we that we have and how much we're taking, um, yeah, I mean that's a whole other conversation. We go, we go, we go, we go. Have to get to that. Well, that's that'll be that'll be for for another episode, man. I, but I did want to play you a clip. There's a couple clips, yep. but I definitely wanted to play this one. Uh, this is President Obama talking about uh, the Charleston mass shooting. I'd love to get your take on it um, after after what he says here. Yep. This morning, I spoke with and Vice President Biden spoke with Mayor Joe Riley and other leaders at Charleston to express our deep sorrow over the senseless murders that took place last night. Michelle and I know several members of Emmanuel AME Church. We knew their pastor, Reverend Clementa Pickney, who, along with eight others, gathered in prayer and fellowship and was murdered last night. And to say our thoughts and prayers are with them and their families and their community doesn't say enough to convey the heartache and the sadness and the anger that we feel. Any death of this sort is a tragedy. Any shooting involving multiple victims is a tragedy. There is something particularly heartbreaking about a death happening in a place in which we seek solace and we seek peace in a place of worship. Mother Emanuel is, in fact, more than a church. This is a place of worship that was founded by African Americans seeking liberty. All right, I'll pause it there, man. What, um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, obviously, it's on the Charleston shootings, and you know, I mean, in contrast, obviously, Trump has a completely different. But just he said a couple of different things. But I'd love to just hear your response on that and what your thought process was when this kind of came across. The I mean, I know you all the way out there in Australia, but I also know you feeling it just as we feeling it here. Totally, totally. I mean, I tweeted the other day, and, and I will respond to that. But I think there's um a better example here for me. Um, than the one that's been given, but I will speak to that. I mean, essentially, you know, uh, Obama's response to the Charleston shooting was measured as always, uh, deliberate, thoughtful, and I guess to essentialize it, what one would, the basic expectations one would have from a, a head of state when something like that happens. Obviously, um, I, I don't agree to play the clip or not, but obviously that wasn't the case with Trump when he responded to what happened in Charlottesville this week. But what I would like to interject with an ad is that, and I tweeted about this a couple of days. Sorry, you still there? Yeah. Yeah. So what I wanted to add though, uh, and I tweeted about this a couple of days ago was not necessarily looking at Obama's comments mm-hmm. that happened um, in Charleston. Yeah. But what Obama's comments were around Baltimore. Yeah. Which I, I thought was much more telling when Obama came out and called the 
what I would say the the, uh, the uprising that took place in Baltimore, not a riot, an uprising after the murder of Freddie Gray. Uh, Obama's comments were that they were thugs, hmm, yeah, criminals, yeah, yeah, right, right, yeah. Just to post that next to what Trump didn't say, yeah, yeah. I think those two things within themselves. When we talk about, it's interesting now when we live. We, we're in this climate where it's very peculiar. I think kind of surreal because we weren't even in this climate this year. But now I get on social media and white supremacy is this buzzword now, right? Like I think before white supremacy was this word that was very rarely heard in the, in the in mainstream media. Right now, now you go on CNN. <laughs> right now you go on yeah. NBC, like everybody's talking about white supremacy. Yeah, yeah. Right. And everybody's talking about Trump in relation to white supremacy. But again, coming back to Baltimore and Obama, where now we look at a Trump and we, and we, and we look back at Obama and Obama becomes venerated and, and juxtaposed next to, next to Trump. Um, and certainly I'm not making the argument that I would prefer to have, you know, Trump over Obama. My point is that his comments around Baltimore and the controversy around what Trump didn't say after Charlottesville speaks to the currency that white supremacy has in the country. That I think that while we see many people today, white mm-hmm. people, who are taking Trump to task for what he said or didn't say after Charlottesville, probably didn't have that much to say around the Baltimore uprising when Obama came out and called those largely black people thugs and criminals. And ultimately, what I say that that speaks to to me is that the highest seat in power, that being the president of the United States, it doesn't matter if it's a white man named Trump in that seat or it's a black named Barack Obama. Yeah. The threat of white supremacy is linear in that in that position. Yeah. That if we're going to talk, I don't remember having there being so much mainstream conversation after Baltimore about Obama calling the uprisers thugs and criminals. I see it much more so after Charlottesville about what Trump didn't initially say. Yeah. In terms of directly speaking out and calling out white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And that's what's really interesting. Those two those two contrasts. Right. Not necessarily what he said about Charleston in Charlottesville, but Baltimore just opposed next to Charlotte's Charlotte, Charlottesville, yeah, and what Obama said, and how it speaks to how deeply steeped this country is in regards to white supremacy. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. Um, well, and I think, I mean, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think the the term white supremacy, along with so many other things, that I, I, I think a lot of people didn't think that this would ever occur like in the mainstream i mean right i mean it's like i think if you black you already kind of know like all right the ugliness of white supremacy has been around since your birth and you know unfortunately will be around and you know when we die in in mainstream society when you have groups that are being legitimized which and are being really embraced and here's the thing i mean i know steve bannon is quote-unquote out I believe he's a big, large mind, my ma, uh, mastermind behind a lot of this. So I don't necessarily think he's like completely out. I don't want to get too political here, but my point being is, is that when you have people who are advising you, who have openly said, "Look, I, 
I want a white nation. I want white people leading what the white way is the right way to go. I guess I'm trying to figure out like what, at what point do we just say as black folks and, or as ethnic minorities in general, like at what point do you finally just say, well, all right, you know, do we need a civil war? Take two, 2.0. I mean, what does that, I mean, what does that look like? And so I don't know. How do we respond to a, when white supremacy is, when you have people at the highest level in the white house saying, I don't, want black people around i don't want asians around i don't want jews around i mean when you this is this is this is coming from the top so it's not just trump i mean the people he surrounded himself with mm. are, are are saying that i mean this these, this and this now it's not even i mean it's not even hidden anymore I mean, before like even in bush's um you know a white house it's like there people would say that stuff but then you'd be like well no no that's not what i meant you know bush senior same thing ronald reagan same thing you can just go back in time but now it's not even hidden it's just like yep mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. that's 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 the way it is so i mean how then do we as black folks in particular how do we respond to that what does that what does that look like is it a civil war take two 2.0 I mean, how, what? Mm-hmm. Wait, it's just, it's just. I'm just. I'm curious because I know, I don't know. I don't think anybody really has the answer to a lot of this. But I'm. But I am curious about just your thought process on that. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I think for me though, I don't necessarily know necessarily if it's about how do we respond as Black people, um, or, or or if you want to say ethnic minorities, uh, because it's not a problem that we've created, right? Yes. So. I think what we continue to black people and ethnic minorities continue to do what we what we've been doing is trying to live our lives as quote unquote good citizens and, and raising our children and going to work. Um, but ultimately, I think the most important thing, and this is something I talked about before the election, is um, is that we begin to take the, which I don't know why we wouldn't take it personally any seriously anyway, but we begin to take this very seriously, this violence. Um, this white supremacist violence, we take it very seriously and no longer continue to feel like there's only one one solution to that. I mean, I know earlier in this conversation you talked about, you know, what do you do? Do people start exercising their Second Amendment rights? Yeah. You know what I mean? Do we Yeah. Not? Like America technically, African Americans have only been free for like fifty years in America. Yeah. We take that starting point from like the sixties after the civil rights movement. Right. The civil rights. Right. Why would a people who, who over the course of that time leading up to that point, the state went out of its way to make sure that guns were not allowed into the hands of black people? Um, I think, you know, when you go back to the Dred Scott decision that um, the black people were only three, was it three fifths a person? Yeah. Three fifths. Right. One of the one of the ruling um, one of the one of the presiding reasons behind that, and one of the statements from one of the Supreme Court judges was that if the black man was considered to be a whole human person um, and, and, and a, a full member of society, I think one of their fears, one of the caveats was that um, what happens if they're allowed to have guns? Right, right, right. So, so I think, and I've been saying this for a while. I think the gun control conversation for white people is one that's completely different for black people. I think it's a very nuanced conversation. Like obviously black communities are overwhelmed with gun violence. So I'm not trying to remove that from the conversation and, and the, and the, and the, the number of lives, black lives that have been taken mm-hmm. um, due to gun violence. 
But I think, again, that's a nuanced conversation. That it's not just a one size fits all that we're not going to you know, remove guns. I think the black people have to approach that conversation from a very different um, perspective. And I think that, you know, I, I was happy to see actually the other day I seen a, a story in the route. I think it was that like one of the largest demographic, one of the, the largest demographic in terms of becoming new gun owners is black women. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, and they got to worry about not just protecting themselves from from white violence, but from black men, too. Let's keep it real. No, ab- no absolutely. No, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So that was one of the real positive things I've seen out of it. Again, black women leading from the front. So I think if you're still based on everything that we've seen just in the last this is the last three years and then the first eight months of this Trump presidency, if you're still on the fence about what you possibly need to do. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what else. I don't know what else needs to be said. I think. I, mean, I don't think that's a decision that many black people think take lightly. I don't think, A, that we want to be violent. And B, I don't think that many, maybe many black people, and I could be speaking on a Turner, don't necessarily want to become gun owners. Uh, as I spoke to about myself, if I was still in the States, um, would I be a gun owner? Most definitely. Is it a decision that I want to do? Would I, no, I don't want to live in, I don't want to live in a place right. or in a world where I have to be in fear, I have to carry a weapon with me, have a weapon inside my home. But I think we're past the point that people should be still sitting on the fence about that. And this is the, I guess the challenge here, and I guess maybe I'll throw a question back here towards you just in, in my thought process here. The question I think though is for African-Americans who overwhelmingly identify as Christians, I think it's some 80% of African-Americans still identify as a Christian, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. I, what's, I, the I, church, what's the church's role in that, right? Like how do you theologically engage this question Without what's the word I'm looking for, for lack of a better word, without setting your setting your con, your 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 congregation up for failure. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying, right? Like, just played the clip from Charlotte's Charlotte. Like, I think there was actually a discussion. I think I read an article, and I could be wrong. I read an article um, after that shooting that there was at one point, or maybe there was somebody there. There was at one point a discussion about whether or not they were going to have an armed guard at the church or. Something along those lines. I think maybe they disagreed and decided not to do it. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, but as we can see, look at look at look at the outcome. Look what happened. It's it's just funny to me sometimes where I find myself like, damn. Sometimes I'm like, I'd be finding myself agreeing with these NRA people, like you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People don't. People guns don't kill people. People with guns kill people. If we had more guns, then people would. You know what I mean? We right. find ourselves yeah. getting into conversation do we know that logic is flawed we know but at the end of the day i'm like i think there's just a different position that black people need to take because at the end of the day too white people in america are overwhelmingly the ones with the most guns oh yeah and the law and the law and yet they're also constitute one of the most safest demographics the least likely to have to deal with you know the home invasion yeah. Nobody getting killed. But yet they're the ones armed to the teeth. Yeah. To protect themselves <laughs> from what they perceive to be on the outside. Right. So I think there's two different conversations about gun control in the country. They're very nuanced. I don't necessarily believe that the conversation about gun ownership for black people is the same conversation that white people ha- have to have because they are the ones that have used guns oppressively over the course of history. Black people are the ones who were denied the right to have weapons and have had and have been you know enslaved, have had land stolen from them from historical narratives. I read white people just show up be like, hey, if you don't give us this land tomorrow, we're gonna come back and kill all y'all. Yeah. What you gonna do? 
Yeah. Those are the, so I think this is much more broader and, and, and deserves much more context. And I think we as black people have a different conversation about that than what than what white people should be having about it. So let me play the clip. Let me just play a little bit of the clip of the of the Trump speech. But I'm going to tell you the one, not the mini sides, because I, I think that one that one's scripted. I mean, he's obviously reading off yeah. a teleprompter. That's not for me. Is that's not that's not 45. That is that's that's him reading off a teleprompter that was crafted right. for him and stuff, man. So you're going to go back to the second one that he did, where he basically um, said said the words "white supremacy." Yeah, let me um let let me let me pull up a little bit. I mean, the, the full one yeah. is um is 16 and a half. Obviously, I'm not going to play that here, but I just I just wanted to play a little right. bit. Of this, just to, just to get your take. I'm sure you've heard it. Benefit, right? Why did you wait so long? I didn't wait long. I didn't wait long. I wanted to make sure, unlike most politicians, that what I said was correct. Not make a quick <laughs> statement. The statement I made on Saturday, the first statement, was a fine statement. But you don't make statements that direct unless you know the fact. It takes a little while to get the facts. You still don't know the facts. And it's a very, very uh, important process to me. And it's a very important statement. So I don't want to go quickly and just make a statement for the sake of making a political statement. I want to know the facts. If you go back to my, in fact, I brought it. I brought it. I brought it. As I said on, remember this, Saturday, we condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence. It has no place in America. And then I went on from there. Now, here's the thing as to, excuse me, excuse me, take it nice and easy. Here's the thing. When I make a statement, I like to be correct. I want the facts. This event just happened. In fact, a lot of the event didn't yeah. even happen yet as we were speaking. This event just happened. Before I make a statement, I need the facts. So I don't want to rush into a statement. So making the statement when I made it was excellent. In fact, the young woman who I hear is a fantastic young woman and it was on NBC. Her mother wrote me and said through, I guess, Twitter, social media, the nicest things. And I very much appreciated that. I hear she was a fine, really actually an incredible young woman. But her mother on Twitter thanked me for what I said. And honestly, I'm going to stop it there just to, I mean, he's going on and I guess this is the full one, but man, what's your thoughts on that, man? I mean, just, just, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I feel like this is the type of, this is the type of political, I mean, I think this is the type of political doublespeak that we are accustomed to with this administration. Um, and again, there's, as, as this administration showed us early on, there's, there's facts and alternate facts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the ultimate facts are those which fit their narrative. So I think, again, when we look at what happened in Charlottesville and, and, the, and the initial comments that came out and, and Trump's defense being that he was waiting to make sure he gets all the information, um, I would believe that that wasn't necessarily um, about protecting the people who are out there protesting against the neo-Nazis. Yeah. I think that was more for him as a way to protect those people who are his base. Yeah. Because yeah. if we just, you know, we just opposed his response to Charlottesville, which took two comment. It took two, the two, two interviews. It was the second one that you just played me. Um, was that, was that the first one? No, that's the second one. That's the second one. Like second I said, the right. first one was the scripted, the scripted. Right. 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 
So, so it took two statements from him to get him to, you know, come a little bit over to say, hey, this is this is terrible. What happened? You know, we condemn this. But then look at what happened in Barcelona. And I think people and many people on social media were commenting on that, right? And the way that he immediately came out and condemned the violence in Barcelona. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with the same old rhetoric and narrative. So it's just it just continues to show that the political doublespeak that we received from this from this uh, this administration and uh, the ways in, in which he's not willing to speak forthrightly about what's going on in the country. In the same token, though, I guess maybe I'm a little, like I said earlier about Obama, I guess maybe I'm a little, what's the word I'm trying to say here? I'm not saying that I'm giving Trump a pass, but I think I like to put into context the fact that, you know, Obama never spoke plainly about what's going on in the country either. Yeah. But I feel, Dan, I feel like this about it, whether it's here in Australia, what I see happening in Australia, whatever, what is going on in the States. And, you know, we talked a little about the use of white supremacy and people, I feel like, not really even understanding what that word means. Really? Yeah. yeah. It's kind of become a word that's being ubiquitously used. Um, at the end of the day, though, I feel like what's going on in America is that people, what they want is they want the covert racism. Hmm. Because the overt racism is embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, Absolutely. And I'm not probably, I'm probably not in that camp. I know that you meant, I want to touch on that part where you were talking about, you know, is this a Civil War 2.0 or, mm-hmm. you know, Race War 2.0. I'm of two places right now. So on one on one mindset, I'm like, people, are, I've seen comments where people are saying after Charlottesville, you know, is this is this an example of the beginning of the, you know, but is this, is this an example of the coming race war? I'm like, I kind of look at it like, nah, this is the beginning of the race war. Yeah. Like, again. I think this is where people aren't taking this stuff too serious or they aren't taking it serious enough. There was a Twitter, somebody on Twitter was tweeting about how um, the governor of Virginia after Charlottesville did a podcast. I don't know if you've heard this or not. And he was talking about how they found weapon caches all around the city. Oh, no, I didn't hear that. No, I didn't hear that. So he was on this podcast of the governor of Virginia. Okay. was talking about they found after the fact they found weapons caches all over the city. They found battering rams. Oh, jeez. So, yeah, man. So, what one needs to look at this as is that, or, or the way I look at it from my perspective, or what I've been monitoring things over for a while now, is this is indicative of that was like more of a test run for these guys. And, you know, it comes back, again, I'm quoting King a lot today, but it comes back to King again. And I remember him talking about how, you know, time is neutral, and he feels that far too often the people who are using, paraphrasing, using time for evil have been making better use of time <laughs> yeah. than those who suppose you're for good. And I, so, yes, the, yes. Right. And so I feel like the left, especially the white liberal left, because black people are just sitting there like, hey, we told y'all. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. They're behind the curve on this thing. You know what I mean? Like, None of this should be a surprise to people. The tea leaves are really reflected this for a long time. I go back to, uh, I go back to 2014. Just an article that really stood out to me. Uh, there's just uh, one scholar. Her name's Catherine. Uh, her name was a, a Ballou, Kathleen Ballou, B-E-L-E-W, and she wrote an article in the New York Times about um, how white supremacist groups have been recruiting like neo Nazis yeah. for some time. Now. Yeah, so there's a relationship between war and white supremacy these white supremacist groups, should I say. 
And that was around the time that, that you may not remember, there was this dude named Franz Glenn, Fraser Glenn Miller. It was in 2014. He was in Kansas. This white supremacist dude, he went and shut up a synagogue, and I think he killed like three Jewish people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This dude's been known to the government for some time. In 1980, he was um he was in a Klan affiliated organization in North Carolina that was known as the White Patriot Party. <laughs> yeah. And then it also showed in like um arc, there was some something in the archival records that showed that he received like a large sum of money from this white power group named the Order in the Pacific Northwest to buy land and weapons to put his followers, who at this point had amassed so 2,500 members in five southern states. This was in 1986. And then mm. he took that money and he paid like 50 grand for weapons and materials that were stolen from or brag that included like anti-aircraft rockets, mines and plastic explosives. I think ultimately Dew was like ended up getting busted by the ATF and did some time for that. But what I'm saying yes. is these people have been active and working for some time. Couple of years ago, too, 2014, 15, there was a paraphernalia from white supremacist groups found on Fort Carson in, in Colorado, where they were yeah. actively trying to recruit yeah. military members, right, yes. to join groups. You know what I'm saying? So it's just that people aren't taking this stuff seriously. Yeah. Well, I think that so, was, it, no, I mean, I, I, I 100% agree with you. Because I also think once like paramilitary groups started showing up and a lot of these like militias, people were like, oh my gosh. I'm like, because that was, for me at least, I mean, that was something that's been. That's something that's been around for a long time as well, especially here in the States. I mean, I know every country has them, but here in the right. States, I mean, they've really been legitimized on many in, in, in many senses of the word because you let a group of black men, black women, black people in general um, right. get a group together with a bunch of guns and ammunition and stockpiles of ammunition and go out. And, and you know, you're you going to have the cops on them. You're going to have the, 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 the military. I mean, so I yes. again, Dan, real quick full circle right like from what we've been talking about earlier today like we think about the conversation around gun control we go back to california reagan when he was the governor yeah the icon or the black panthers showing up at the state capitol with their right legal firearms right what promoted gun control at that point in the state of california it was off the backs of the black panthers doing a very legal show of you know of solidarity um, in front of the Capitol with their very legal weapons. That's what promoted the, the, the legislature, the California governor, a, a government under Reagan, to make changes to the gun laws. Yeah. Yeah. Same thing. Right? Right? Yeah. Same thing. You look yeah. the Black Panthers, the Black Panthers and, and every other pro-black active or social justice organization was disbanded. We have uh, people who have been in solitary confinement for some 20 years now, political prisoners. You know? Um but the KKK is still thriving. And this administration right. comes yeah. in, removes K the KKK from the watch list, right? Not as if they needed any more assistance because after 9-11, all federal funding was directed towards um, watching terror groups, uh, Islamic terror groups, while these, while these white fundamentalist, um, white supremacist groups were allowed to just thrive. And yeah. then Trump comes in with more license. So again, I think, the race war, at least for some part, people has already been happening and they've been planning and working towards that. I'm not trying to be fear mongering here. I'm literally looking at this thing like very realistically. And I'm saying for the people on the left, the people who are fighting, say they're fighting for justice and so on and so forth. Like we're behind the curve. Right. If we're sitting here act, talking about, well, is, is this what we're is this going to happen? Is there very clearly I look at Charlottesville and I see that as what we would call a classic, you know, 
tactic, a military tactic, you know, a feint. They were just really trying to see what ways that people were going to respond to what they were doing. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, I think there's a long game for them. And, and one of the things I'm theorizing on, too, is in as much as there's just talk about Trump being impeached, I feel like if he was to be impeached, it would those those people are willing to 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 take up arms. And, and, and oh, and they said they would. I think we were in a climate in the state. Yeah. Right. I didn't know that. But the, reading the tea leaves. Yeah. Like if they were trying to impeach him, I think that that would be the tipping point for those groups to to begin to to, to take take those arms out to the street. Exactly. And not torches, not tiki. Right. <laughs> right. It won't be tiki. Right. It won't be tiki torches, man. Well, I think right. that's right. Yes. Yes. I mean, I think that's a that's a yeah, that's something I, I we're going to have to come back to that. <laughs> Well, because that you're right, I don't want right. to be fear mongering either, man. But I think, and so much of religion no, is, is mi- go ahead. All. But I think I'm not trying to fear monger at all. But I think it's about being pragmatic, yes, and being realistic, and saying there's nothing wrong with preparing for something in the hopes that we don't have to follow through on that. Yes, yes. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. I, I, I think that, you know, I think that, uh, you know, you go back to the early, the late 1930s, the early 40s in Germany. I think that, again, like, you know, if, 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 if the Jewish people knew what was coming, would they do things differently? Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, am I wrong? I could be wrong. I'm just saying. <laughs> well, man, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know. There's, there's, there's a lot on this that I've, that I've been looking at. And I mean, I just, I asked myself, like, you know, even if I do get a weapon, it's just like, man, I mean, the to deal with ex-military folks who are, because I believe there's a lot, and I'm not saying this is about the military in general, but I know there are folks within it who are those white supremacists. There are, we already know, we've been bearing witness to that um, for years now that, you know, police officers and, um, you know, they're, they're white supremacists and they, and they have joined the ranks of being, (laughs) you know, in, um, uh, you know, being in law enforcement because it's like they know that they know the laws behind them and, and they know they won't get convicted. I mean, I still haven't seen any of these officers, particularly white males that have been convicted of anything. Sure. They'll get charged or sure. Oh, we'll take you to court or we'll lay you off in suspension. So it, it's very interesting. And just how strongly so many white evangelicals are still and black for that matter. I'm not going to just put it all on, on, on white either. Uh, black and Brown uh, are still behind Trump right now. Right. I think, you know, it's a couple of things there. I think the degree to which, like, you know, specifically, I'm going to say white America, but you could say, like you said, the country, but white America specifically, because they are the one that kind of drive this, you know, this culture. Um, naively, I think the degree to which white America naively, like, deifies and, like, venerates the military is the type, you know, ironically, it's the type of militaristic nationalism used to discredit, discredit states like North Korea. Yeah. But, yeah. But in, in the same way they do that to the police, but, you know, I don't think it's not it's not fear mongering. It's not a stretch to talk to, to the, the research. The stuff's been out there like white supremacist groups actively recruit. As I've just talked about earlier, a few years ago for Carson, they were out there handing out paraphernalia to get service yeah. members to groups. Yeah. They're known to go into the military for the explicit purpose of getting tactical training. Right. Right. So, you know, what I'm saying so. Yeah. To, to say it's mongering, I, 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 I find that foolish. I mean, and again, like. For, for especially for Black people, considering our experience in the United States, um, whether that's from the you know the first the, the first when the first slave ship docked, 
up to you know 2017 with the ubiquitous killings of us by the by the police um, very publicly um why was it why is anybody prepared to give them the benefit of the doubt in this regard that's the <laughs> right. question that i right that's the question i have yeah i don't understand well and i think too i mean i think it's important to note just uh, you know for me i mean i, I it's hard to say. I always say, man, when this thing clears up, I mean, I do, I do think at some point, you know, we'll look back on this time and be like, man, I mean, just like the way we're looking back at World War II now, we look back, you know, at, uh, at the Civil War and we look at just the, you know, the people who were, who were on the other side, right? <laughs> and being like, and that's for me, I mean, that's what gets me. I'm just like, even if you look at examples throughout the Bible, I mean, I don't see Jesus going and making friends with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the government officials. I don't see him going and, and trying to like, oh, let me love my enemies in, in that sense. I mean, I I don't see much of that. In fact, some of the harshest, most harshest words that Jesus has to say are, through the, are, are, are for those reserved for those folks and stuff. And so I don't know, man, it's just it, it just gets me sometimes when we start to look at again, theologically, just how many people who will who will say, because I don't think for a second my life is worth anything to a white police officer that again feels that his life is threatened, you know, but he'll go right back to church on Sunday and, you know, people will, you know, thank him. They'll be like, Oh man, thank you for taking care of us. Thank you for watching out. Thank you for keeping these streets safer and stuff, man. I mean, I, that, that is a theological and, 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 and really ecclesiological argument that I think we need to take up as well. Yeah, and I think that that point right there, Dan, really, um, it really just deconstructs the fallacy of this notion of separation between church and state. <laughs> that right. historically, right. you look at the history, whether we're talking Christianity, but you know, I certainly think if we're talking imperialism, we're talking colonialism, then again, this is one of my issues that I have with the faith is that we're talking colonialism, we're talking imperialism, we're talking Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. They would send the missionaries in before they would send the troops in. <laughs> yeah yeah right somebody just right. said that so, too <laughs> right so so there's this long so this notion but in particular in america about there being this this separation from church and state when the reality is is from the very beginning the church and the state have been intertwined right right and so and so we see that when as you said these, these cops who by their own account see themselves as good christians do their duty of killing us and then go to church on Sunday and are venerated yeah. by their by the by their cohorts there. That these people go to church on Sunday and have nothing to say about the murder that took place the day before that's in the media everywhere. Right. Right. So 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 the so the church, um, the white church specifically, specifically I'm talking about here, has had a long relationship with the state. It's worked to their convenience to make it seem like the two are oppositional. So that the church can maintain its position as being this place, right, of virtue right. and so on and so forth. It's worked for them in that regard, but I, I see them both the same. They are they are the church within itself is an apparatus. It has been an apparatus of the state that has worked to to oppress and condone said oppression and co-signed off on it and is in bed with it. <laughs> Man. 
Oh man, brother. Well, man, this is this has been very enlightening, man. As always, I have always appreciate the conversation with you. Um uh we're going to have to continue this and for those of you listening, look out, you know, brother brother Joseph going to be doing some co-hosting as well uh on here, man. <laughs> um what, uh, what's uh what's next for you, brother? Where uh, where can people find you? Well, you know, I'm active on Twitter under Joseph L. Boston. Currently, like we just said, we uh, earlier in the podcast, we talked about the book that you and I, and uh, we worked on the book, the essay. We had a chapter from the book that's coming out, hopefully at the end of the year. I'm not sure about I'm hoping. that. But we, I'm hoping, yeah. Yep, we've got, we've got a chapter called When the Racism Awakens, it's a critical reader um, of essays about the Star Wars franchise. Yes. Looking at it from a socio, socio-religious context. Um, so really looking forward to that. Um, obviously you talked about me doing the podcast. We're going to be looking forward to doing some more of that coast of that with you and just, yeah, hopefully, I don't know, whatever, 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 wherever, wherever I'm taking, I'm not really sure I'm moving after that, but I'm, I'm happy to have my first, uh, chapter in a book come out. I've never done one before. So looking forward to seeing how that's received and hope it comes out in time for the movie. So I heard that. Yeah. I know they're trying to, I know they're trying to get it out before the, right around the time of the, the new release here. The last, last Jedi. Jedi, yeah, 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 man. Yeah, we got a lot. We got, got some more talking to do about that. Yeah, sure. brother, we got, we got, <laughs> we got a lot more <laughs> to do on that, man. Well, hey, for those of you listening, by all means, drop us a line, um, comment. Uh, this is on. This is going to be on Facebook, White Hodge Podcasting. Uh, so you can take a look at us up there. Uh, Profane Faith. We're online as well. So drop us a line. Let us know what you think. Joseph, thanks so much for joining us today. As always, thank you, brother. Much love. Thank All right, man. Well, what'd y'all think? <laughs> Joseph's an interesting brother, ain't he? Yeah, I tell you what, Joseph and I have talked a lot about faith, um, just uh, being a man, being a black man, uh, being married, having kids. Um, all those things I think are important. And that's part of the conversation that I think, particularly for men of color, we don't necessarily get a chance to have. And so his friendship has been uh, very rich in that sense to have those type of conversations and to not only just even have them, but to actually be engaged and to, and to have somebody else to know, man, they're going through some of the same things and, and, and I'm going to be all right. He's going to be all right for the most part. Right. I mean, it doesn't always turn out that way, but it's like to know somebody else is going through something and you're not the only one, man. Sometimes that's just, that is some comfort. That is some space just to heal in, in and of that. And I know for me, I haven't had that many friends. Most of my good friends are spread out across the country. And now this brother's not even in the country, but that's all right. Because, um, you know, he and I are of kindred spirits and I've appreciated his friendship, just his connection. The fact that we can talk about a lot of things. I mean, it's rare to find somebody where you can just like agree on just about everything except football teams, you know, but hey, you know, nobody's perfect. Right. <laughs> um, but seriously, I've appreciated uh, Brother Joseph and just what he brings, his critical insight. And so this is the first of many um, of interactions with Brother Joseph. And so we're going to have him back on the show, may even have him as a co-host or guest host or, or and what have you um, throughout as well. So be on the lookout. I wanted to introduce y'all to him. I think he fits well with the series. And so tell us what you think and go over to white hodge podcasts and check us out drop us a line um subscribe to us on itunes and make sure if you like this tell some friends oh yeah let them know that's all that stuff is good let them know let them know that we're here let them know that uh this is a good conversation some good conversations happening over here all right cool until the next time peace y'all